listeners, and welcome to the NK News podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and this podcast was recorded in Seoul on the evening of the 31st of July, 2021. Joining me via Zoom from his home in Virginia, where it is early in the morning of the same day, is retired U.S. Army Colonel Ashton Orms. Before we get started, I'd like to remind you all, please, to leave a review about this podcast wherever you can, and to please share this episode with everyone you know and four people you don't. Secondly, do check out nknews.org and consider buying a subscription. If you sign up for the annual plan, it's less than a dollar a day, and that helps to fund the excellent journalism that my colleagues put out every single day. Also, if you have any feedback, questions, or guest recommendations, please send them to podcast at nknews.org. All right, my guest today, the retired Colonel Ashton Orms, is a, a former Northeast Area, sorry, Northeast Asia Foreign Area Officer and a former civilian member of the Defense Prisoner of War slash Missing Personnel Office or DPMO. It's quite a mouthful. Uh, welcome on the show, Ash. Thank you, Jocko. Very happy to be here. Thank you for joining me. It, it took quite a while to uh, to, to organize this. Uh, perhaps you can uh, share with our audience uh, why there was such a long lead time. Uh, well, usually um, when I do something like this, I uh, uh, write all the, the questions down, the answers, and, and then I send it in to the people who review it just to make sure that I haven't inadvertently uh, put any classified information in it. Not, nothing uh, that I say today will be classified in any way, but the, but the process can be a little bureaucratic at times. And in this case, it, it took uh, almost a month. Right. Well, it's best to be safe than sorry. Yes. Uh, so nothing, nothing classified, but hopefully still things that will be of interest to our listeners. I certainly found them interesting uh, in preparing for this. Uh, there are three periods of your professional life uh, that you spent with in contact with North Koreans uh, here in South Korea. Um, three of your six periods that you spent in Korea. Let's let's talk first of all about the period May 1986 to June 1988, when you were a language officer of the United Nations Command component of the Military Armistice Commission. Now, I've been in South Korea a, a long time and I've had a lot of trips up to the JSA, but it's always good to just recap what exactly is United Nations Command and, and how does it, what is it as a component of the Military Armistice Commission? Yes, um, well, the United Nations Command was the, was the military command, usually led by an American, but uh, including the forces of the United States and the Republic of Korea, South Korea, of course, on the so-called sending states, uh, other countries that uh, sent forces to help defend South Korea during the Korean War, such as the United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, mm -hmm. France, uh, many others. The United Nations Command component of the Military Armistice Commission um, was an organization that's created by the Armistice Agreement itself. So the, the Armistice Agreement, of course, signed on July 27th, 1953. It was... Uh, an idea that, that I personally suspect came out of, of the Great War, the First World War, mm. uh, when every one of the, the senior Americans who was later involved in the Korean armistice had been on active duty in the United States Army, including President Truman, President Eisenhower, General MacArthur, General Ridgeway, General Clark, and, and, and so forth. So mm. the idea was that, that uh, the Korean War would end with uh, an armistice agreement, a, a ceasefire, until what the, what the armistice agreement itself calls uh, a permanent 
peaceful settlement political solution would be available, just as the Treaty of Versailles ultimately replaced the armistice agreement that ended the First World War. So they needed some organizations in, in the interim to make sure that the agreement held up, that the ceasefire, the armistice agreement held up. And the armistice agreement, it calls for a military armistice commission to be formed uh, with five uh, senior officers, general officers or senior colonels from the United Nations Command, which and those five officers usually included Americans, uh, South Koreans, and, and members of the other sending states. And then on the other side, the, the two uh, forces that fought against the United Nations Command, which were North Korea's Korean People's Army, or KPA, and the Chinese People's Volunteers, which we called the, the CPV. Mm -hmm. um, so they would also have five senior officers who would, would compose the, the Military Armistice Commission, total of uh, 10. And for those who've actually been to Pamanjom and, and seen uh, Building T2, which is where the tours go to, large right. conference table with the flags and the, the uh, line going down the middle of the table that marks the military demarcation line. You can picture the five senior members or five senior officers from the United Nations Command on one side, five from the KPA CPV on the other side, and behind them are, are their staff officers. So, so the staff component are called um, the secretariats of, of both sides, MAC secretariat on the UNC side. So all told, the, the United Nations Command component of the Military Armistice Commission consisted of those five senior officers, the senior most of whom was called the senior member, and then the secretariat, the, the staff officers uh, behind them. And the role of, of the, uh, the Military Armistice Commission was fairly straightforward. Armistice Agreement said that it, it was there to supervise the implementation of the Armistice Agreement and interestingly, to settle through negotiations any hmm. violations of the armistice agreement. And clearly, uh, when the agreement was signed on, on, the, on the UNC side, at least there was an expectation that, that the armistice agreement wouldn't be a long lasting one, that that, that peaceful uh, settlement at a political level would replace it within a year or so. Uh, but of course, that wasn't the case. It's gone on for decades now. Right, it never happened. Okay, so you were there the first time as language officer. Were you then one of the staff who sits behind the senior five? Uh, that, that's exactly right. So I would go when they would have uh, the formal meetings of, of, the, of the 10 members of the, of the Armistice Commission, which are called plenary sessions. Then I would be uh, there in the room uh, just behind them uh, working with my language specialist to provide translations into Korean and Chinese of everything that our senior member, who in those days was normally a U.S. Navy rear admiral, hmm. all of his statements we would translate. And then our language specialist would also translate as the North Korean or Chinese officers, and normally it was only the North Korean senior member who was speaking. But as he would speak in Korean, then our language specialist would do a, a, a simultaneous translation yeah. before his own staff would, would later on provide an English translation. So the, this was very important and very hard work. Would that, uh, that simultaneous uh, translation, uh, would that be whispered into the ear of the senior member while the, uh, the North Korean or Chinese officer is still talking? Uh, yes, well, he would actually have, uh, I believe it's like a set of headphones or ah. as before uh, earbuds, right? But yes. uh, it wasn't whispered, it, it was transmitted to him. Right. 
through, through the audio equipment that was in uh, building T2, which which had had a very good audio setup even for the 1980s. Mm. So so he could clearly hear them, but as well as the rest of us on the staff, we could all put on our earphones and and hear uh, what our own translators were providing in terms of a simultaneous translation. Uh huh. But but again, the the point of that was that uh, the senior member had to respond uh, to whatever had been said by the the KPA, the the North Korean general, and we had to be prepared to translate what he was going to say. So statements were prepared in advance, and this gave him a sense of what was coming. Uh, We could select what statements to respond to, edit them as needed. So so seconds were really critical at that time, and, and our our Korean language specialists were all citizens of uh, the Republic of Korea, South Korea, mm-hmm. native speakers, obviously, spoke excellent English and had spent years and years in uh, Pamunjom. So they were very familiar with, with the issues and the terminology of the Armistice Commission. My job, fortunately, was merely to, to be a good boss, to supervise them, to make sure that they had what they needed. I, I certainly didn't have the language skills to do that sort of work myself. So in effect, everything would get translated or interpreted twice, first of all, uh, by the UNC side to the UNC, and then it would also be interpreted by the North Korean side's own translators when they finished speaking. Is that correct? That's right. It it was really, to be honest, it it was a a, a very uh, formalized process and a a fairly inflexible one. Mm -hmm. So each side would make a statement and so let, let's see it from the standpoint of, of our rear admiral, uh, U.S. Navy. Uh, he would make a statement in English, yep. speaking himself, of course. And then our Chinese language specialist in, the, in UNCMAC would make the same statement in Chinese. Uh, our Korean mm-hmm. language spe- specialist would make the same statement in Korean. Actually, it'd be the reverse order. We'd go English, Korean, and then Chinese. Uh, and then uh-huh. we'd be finished. But, but everything had to be said three times. Then, then the North Korean senior member would respond to that. The Chinese uh, senior general would be at the table that usually wouldn't say anything. So he would re- okay. respond in Korean after we had made our statement three times in three different languages. And then his own staff would provide his statement then. His Korean, a North Korean officer, English-speaking North Korean officer would read the same statement in English. And then a Chinese officer would read the same statement in Chinese. So that is quite a, a laborious uh, and, as you say, bureaucratic process to go through. It, it really was. And, and on top of top of that, I, I, I hope I want to <laughs> start a, a debate with other veterans of, of UNCMAC who might, might have a, a different opinion of that. But, but I, I, many times these, these meetings weren't as productive as one would have hoped they would have been, because we also, mm. and this was, was from the early days of UNC recommendation, they were open to the press. So again, those who uh-huh. have been to Pamunjan and seen Building T2, you know, there are large windows on either side. Those windows open up. The press would stand outside during the meetings. The windows would be open so they could see what was going on, take pictures, I, I believe the recording system, actually, there was a speaker outside so they could clearly hear. They could hear through the open windows. Mm. They could hear from the speaker what was being said. Uh, so that that made a bit of inflexibility. Not, not, nothing could be said uh, sort of off the record, so to speak. Everything was very formalized. It also made it extremely cold inside T2 during the, the winter months. And yes. 
sometimes it would get so cold, even though there were heaters in the room, but with the windows wide open and the, the wind blowing down from, from North Koreans in Manchuria, uh, it would get so cold that the water, free, uh, water in the pitchers on the conference table would start to freeze. And I had wow. no, during those meetings, my job was, was to, to orchestrate the efforts of the language specialists, make sure they had the right statements, the right translations in hand. Uh, I, I had no personal contact with the North Korean or Chinese officers mm -hmm. during those meetings, other than looking across the table and see them kind of glaring back at us. I guess we appeared to be glaring at them also. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, were there ever disputes about um, translations, you know, whether the uh, the English version provided by the, uh, the South Korean translator matched up with the English version given by the North Korean translator and, you know, whether there were different nuances that were missed or something like that? Uh, well, that's that's a, a very good question. Yet, in, in fact, there was a process for that as well. So on a weekly basis, I would uh, go back with, with some of my senior language specialists uh, that go up to uh, Pamunjom, and I would meet individually with my North Korean, my KPA language officer counterpart, and also my mm. Chinese people's volunteer language counterpart. And one of the things we would do is we, we would take the written statements that, that we had made, the translations of those, and we would sit down and, and go through those because these would be formal records and agree upon the translations of what had been said. And that was fairly huh. businesslike. The, these, were, these were closed meetings, informal setting. And there wasn't much dispute because it, it, it wasn't a matter of, uh, of approving what the UNC member had said or what the, what the KPA member had said. It's just that their comments had been translated correctly. And, and the language specialists on both sides had worked together for many years. And, and I can't remember ever having a problem, a big argument over the hmm. translation that went fairly smoothly. That's interesting. Now, of course, a lot of people, um, myself included, since the, the Chinese people's volunteers haven't been in Panmunjom for a long time, it's easy to forget that they were there for a long time, and they were certainly uh, still active when you were there. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, yes, I, I think people know the the history of the, the Korean War. The, the, the Chinese uh, maintained the fiction that they weren't actually involved in the Korean War, that they had sent a group of volunteers to uh, to fight and and uh, I think their phrase is to, to aid chosen and repel American aggression, uh, and that those really weren't the regular armed forces of, of China. Hence, since they gave them the name, the, the Chinese People's Volunteers, but but they were obviously the the regular PLA. They have kept their own unit uh, names and numbers and and fought through through the Korean War. And, and the CPV stayed there, the last Chinese uh, combat troops, I believe, from my reading of the history, left North Korea in 1958, but the officers mm. stayed there in Panmunjom until 1994. So I was dealing with them from 86 to 88, and actually that was, that was a time, it was just before uh, Tianmen in 89, it was, it was a time when relations between the, the United States and the PRC were fairly good. I had a very good mm -hmm. relationship with the, with the Chinese officers in, in those days, and they were fairly open. Uh, my counterpart was was a, a PLA officer, so some of the uniform-wearing uh, members of the CPV delegation said they were actually from the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs, even though they, they wore the CPV uh, uniform. Huh. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Uh, did it look notably different from the PLA uniform? 
Well, well, that's that's another very good question, Jocko. It's it's identical. That this is real, uh, as Americans would say, inside baseball information. Inside baseball, yeah. Be interested in, but but there's it's an identical uniform to the PLA uniform, with with one exception. Um, hmm. So the PLA symbol, uh, the, those who who are interested in the subject would know, consists of a red star with the Chinese characters eight and one in the center of the star. Uh, for the 1st of August, which is the anniversary date, the founding date of the PLA. Uh, obviously, right. the, the CPV, the fiction that the CPV really wasn't the same as the PLA, they couldn't use 8-1. So the uniform's identical, except those two characters for 8 and 1 don't appear. The, the star is blank in the middle. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, now, in the, the weekly, just to go back for a second there to the, the weekly meetings that you had with the uh, uh, the, the North Korean uh, language counterparts w was that you said they were quite businesslike. Were you able to uh, sort of talk off the record there and 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 be a bit more frank with each other? Well, we we were, and and that was true not only of of the Chinese officers, but but the KPA, the the North Korean officers as well. And you ask about approving the the translations. That really didn't take too long. Uh, normally, didn't have any problems uh, with that, and and it let left extra time. There were some weeks where we really didn't even have any uh, any formal meeting uh, statements to translate mm. or, or approve. So we could speak pretty much about whatever we wanted to. It, it was a, a reasonably informal atmosphere. The North Koreans would, wouldn't normally talk to us about the, their, their version of what was going on in, in Korea. We, we, we could ask them questions. And get to know them, I, I would say, as, as, uh, as colleagues. That's the way they translated their position to us. Yeah. The, the only thing that uh, we did have to be careful about, though, was, was even, even though it was a relaxed atmosphere, the, the North Korean officers were, were certainly under the pressure of uh, probably ha having their own security officers there somewhere in the room listening to what, what they said and, uh, yes. and their own superiors. So there was was danger that they would say the wrong thing and there, there was one time that really stuck out in my mind when one of the uh, one of the north korean uh language officers who i'd seen at our meetings for uh, uh, some time i'd uh, i'd only been there a year everyone else had, had been there much longer than me but he suddenly disappeared just stopped coming to the meetings it, it was a bit odd hadn't hadn't said he was leaving so when i asked the north wow. korean officers what had happened to him uh, they said uh, sheepish i would say and didn't want to talk about it. They just said he'd been reassigned. Uh, my South Korean language specialists who were fairly familiar with the situation after serving there for, for many, many years. And knowing that, yeah. that the KPA officers really uh, working in Panmunjom was was a, a career in itself. They, they would stay there for, for decades. It's unusual mm. for them to leave. They said usually when that happened abruptly, it was a matter of someone having gotten in trouble probably for having been judged to be uh, politically unreliable possibly sent to the to the camps. So it was it was That's a serious crazy. business for them. And that was something that uh, made a deep impression on me. Yes, yes, that, that does sound very grim. And, and so you left there uh, as language officer in the summer of 88. And then uh, we now fast forward almost uh, seven years later, if my math is correct, uh, you returned in March 1995 as uh, this time as secretary of the United Nations Command Component of the Military Armistice Commission. So uh, you, you were the secretary of UNCMAC and you were there for a little bit over two years. Tell us a bit, a, a bit more about, uh, well, how your job had changed. Now you were the UNCMAC secretary. What did you have to do? 
Well, I still had had the responsibilities that all those who were secretary prior to me had, which was to, to supervise the staff, which, as I recall, is 20 to 30 people, uh, uh, mm-hmm. mostly officers and senior non-commissioned officers, as, as, as well as civilians like the language specialists. So uh, there's quite a bit to do there. We're responsible for investigating armistice violations, uh, dealing w- w- with the sending states, uh, liaison officers, uh, a number of, of different things we had to do. But what had really changed was um, in 1994, uh, after a dispute of two or three years about a United Nations command decision to make a South Korean major general our senior member as opposed to an American one uh, that the North Koreans were were not willing to accept that, and so in 1994 they formally withdrew from the Military Armistice Commission. Mm. They kept their personnel there, but they they retitled themselves the KPA Mission to Pamunjom, and they um, they continued to meet with us, but under under different ground rules. They they also at at that point asked the Chinese People's Volunteers to withdraw, and and the Chinese did so. Ah. There was another organization established by the Armistice Commission called the Neutral Nation Supervisory Commission that's made up of mm-hmm. Poland, uh, Czechoslovakia, which had now become the, the new Czech Republic, uh, Switzerland, and Sweden. So so the Poles and Czechs were on the North Korean side, were in North Korea, and the, the, the KPA uh, asked them to leave North Korea as well. So, so, so they did. All this happened in 1994, just before I arrived. So right. the, the, the upshot of all that was uh, there were no longer any meetings of, of the t- those 10 senior officers, the, the general officers. So the highest level meetings in Amunjan, uh dealing with armistice uh, issues in those days were now between me uh, as the UNMAC secretary at a, a colonel and yep. had my North Korean uh, counterpart. So th- this is quite interesting that you, you'd you been there uh, from 86 to 88, serving in, in this, the UNCMAC uh, that had been there you know, since 1953, since the armistice. And yet you go away for a couple of years, you come back and the whole organization has been turned on its head. The Chinese have been sent home. Uh, the Czechoslovaks and Poles have been sent home. The North Koreans have relabeled themselves the Korean People's Army mission to Panmunjom and have formally left the uh, you know withdrawn from the military armistice commission, was it? I mean, did it feel a bit chaotic to you coming back to this completely unfamiliar situation? Well, well, it, it was. Uh, although um, it, even with the formality in the past, the, the work in in the military armistice commission often was was a bit chaotic, unexpected events uh, popping up that uh, would would cause us to scurry around. So, so it it was it was a new set of procedures, but on the on the positive side for me personally, it, it wasn't positive for mm-hmm. armistice maintenance. Uh, it would have been better if we'd had all of all of those uh, old procedures and the Chinese and the Czechs and Poles still there. But at least for me, it, it actually streamlined things a little bit. We, we didn't have those formal meetings anymore. We didn't have to make formal statements and translate them later, that sort of thing. Um, mm. And I had a fairly good relationship with my North Korean counterpart. And in the or- informal settings that, that, that we, we then had, I, I, we were able to make some progress on, on, um, on a few issues. Now, how long does an UNCMAC secretary serve in that role? Well, the UNCMAC secretary, uh, j- just by, by the way things were organized, uh, was always an American officer uh, representing mm-hmm. all of the United Nations Command, but an American. And so the, the normal assignment was two years, some, sometimes an extension for a third year. 
Um, and, and I'd like to point out that that was a real contrast to the way uh, the Chinese had done it, but especially the way the North Koreans had done it. I think I mentioned earlier that they, mm. um, their officers would stay in, in Pamunjong for, for many years, more, more than a decade or so, which actually gave my KPA counterpart a, a bit of an advantage because uh, he, would, he was truly a subject matter expert on, on a number of issues mm. that had been going on for, for a long time. And the North Koreans yeah. had, had good institutional knowledge of everything that had gone on in the past. We had to be very careful to go back through our own records. They had lived through these things personally. And, and if, if we said something that contradicted what the UNC position had been in the past, they were quick to point that out to us. Uh, one could observe that also outside the framework of the Military Armistice Commission, that this is quite true of uh, North Korea's political negotiations and dealings with other countries that... Uh, uh, you know, North Korea tends to stay the same and the people stay in similar positions, whereas governments change in, in uh, the United States and South Korea every couple of years. So they're all, you've always got new people in the job starting again. It, it's quite similar in a way. Uh, yeah, very much so. Very much so. My, my impression, of having seen a few of the, the North Korean MFA people also, is, is that they have a have a small team com compared to the numbers mm. of people that we bring to negotiations, but they're uh, they're very professional and very much uh, expert in the issues they're discussing. Now, the other thing that happened in 1994 before you came back to be UNCMAC secretary was there was the signing of the agreed framework. Uh, did that affect the general mood and state of tensions uh, when you arrived? It, it didn't have any, any real impact at down at my level. I would say it was, was relatively speaking, a, a positive development. Uh, it did create, uh, interestingly, uh, one of the things the agreed framework established was, was a military-to-military -military channel between North and South Korea, mm. which uh, allowed military discussions outside of the Armistice uh, Commission framework. Um, but I, I don't... Was it via a hotline? Uh, yes, by hotline or face-to-face or -face meetings. They would have face-to-face -face meetings sometimes. Uh, as I recall, oh. that channel wasn't being used that often, however, and we had very good coordination. Obviously, um, uh, South Korean officers were part of, of the United Nations Command component of the Military Armistice Commission, very, very active. So, so there was good coordination. There was no problem if, if there... If, the ROC and, and KPA were discussing a, a military issue, they would keep us informed. Uh, but mm -hmm. the tension within the Armistice Commission came more from, from those organizational changes the preceding year that, that we talked about. I, I really can't think of a way other than the establishment of that other, other channel of communications for military issues that uh, the agreed framework directly affected us. Mm. Now, you said that since the... Uh... The five-on-five five, uh, full plenary meetings with the the senior people were, was no longer going on uh, with the breakdown of, of the armistice. Sorry, with the with the breakdown of the the UNCMAC, uh, well, well, the withdrawal uh, of, of the KPA formally from the armistice commission was what caused that. Yeah, right. The withdrawal of, of the KPA, and so you're able to meet in in a more uh, informal and, and productive setting, um, less bureaucratic. Also, you no longer having to interpret everything into both Chinese and Korean, presumably just doing it into Korea now. So that would have uh, streamlined that process a little bit as well. Yes. Was it possible, like, did you ever uh, share refreshments with the, uh, the North Koreans in these informal meetings? Uh, yes. Uh, well, 
I made a point of always doing that. And um, you, you know, one one of the the things that that um, others who came before me pointed out to me, and and I, I certainly learned through my own experiences in in Korea, was, was to try to use Korean cultural norms both uh, both to lower the tension and 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 to make the North Koreans perhaps uh, a little more willing to talk, which was was the whole mm. point. So whenever we would have a meeting. Uh, I would go to the uh, the, the nearest uh, military mess hall that prepared uh, Korean food for South Korean soldiers. I'd, I'd get Korean uh, food dishes, uh, you know, to typical Korean meals. Bring those. Uh, we, we would would have a drink together uh, at, at the same time. And and remember, this is also the period of the so-called arduous march in in North Korea. Oh yeah. So. Um, it worked to my advantage in, in that occasionally, you know, a negotiating tactic of of the North Koreans would be to to storm out out of a meeting over something that seemed fairly trivial, just to to build the tensions. I, I think as a tactic, it was a little bit psychologically maybe uh, uh, disappointing if uh, for them to have to do that when there was a nice full meal waiting for them on on the table. And and I it just relaxed everybody. It, it didn't mean that they they suddenly were going to change a position that that they already had, uh, simply because we'd give them a free meal. But but it did make right. them uh, more willing, I think, to talk and and to be a bit more open uh, with us. And and we would would talk while eating and having a drink together. Okay, so you arrived there uh, at at Unkmac as the uh, the new secretary in in March 1995, and then a little bit over. Half a year later, in October of 1995, a small band of armed North Koreans were discovered at the Imjin River, uh, and one of them was killed. What was the reaction to this at Ankmak, and how was this incident handled? Well, this is a, a good example of, of how we handled armistice violations. Uh, and, and this was a fairly serious armistice violation, any, any violation that involves the, the firing of weapons and the loss of life is, is serious, obviously. Mm. As soon as we were informed of, of this, um, and, and to give a little background, uh, this appeared through our later investigation to, to be a, a three-man North Korean special operations forces um, reconnaissance team, a military reconnaissance team that was swimming up the mm. Injin River from North Korea into what, where the, the banks of the river change over into, into South Korean territory, spotted by a very- Were they dressed as South Koreans? Say again. Were they dressed as South Koreans? Yes, ultimately, and I'll explain that, oh. that in a moment. Yeah. They would, again, very highly trained soldiers. As I recall, they would normally wear something called a dry suit, which allowed them mm. to have other clothing underneath what they were wearing as opposed to a wetsuit. And in this case, the one that we were able to examine was wearing a was a fabricated South Korean army uniform underneath his dry suit. Oh. But after the, the South Korean soldiers spotted, opened fire, one was killed, the other two uh, apparently escaped, went back to North Korea. We, we were called in, went, went to the, the, the scene. I, I went personally this time. I, I didn't go to every, every investigation we did, but I went along. I had a, a French army colonel with me, a South Korean army mm. officer, our own Marine Corps. Uh, officer who uh, U.S. Marine Corps officer who who was our ops officer did did the investigations and when we got there the the uh, North Korean commando had, had been pulled out of the Imjin River and they had him up on the bank uh, he was was dead had been 
hit in the head. They, they were taking, mm. uh, taking all of his clothing off and then they got down and, and, and he had the, uh, the South Korean army uniform on. They kept going. He also had, uh, which caused us to stand back a bit when they got to that point, tied, tied around his neck was a live hand grenade. Uh, oh. which which we assumed if those remember uh, who can remember the Rangoon bombing re remember mm. uh, the North Korean commandos involved in that committed suicide with hand grenades so that's probably what that was there for but caused us a little concern to stand back while it was disarmed um, but at, at the end of that it, it was clear what what we were seeing this had been seen before these sorts of incidents unfortunately were 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 uh, not unusual uh, to every year or so to detect something like this. We, we then went to the North Koreans and said, you know, this is what had happened, accused them of an armistice violation and offered to return the remains of, of the dead soldier uh, to them. Mm -hmm. And they responded as they typically would. They said, well, we had nothing to do with this. I think you're trying to falsely accuse us of an armistice violation. Certainly was not one of our men, and and they refused to take uh, the body of their own soldier uh, back. Oh, gosh, wow! And and presumably he he's remained were disposed of here in South Korea. Then, uh, that that's correct. There's um, and I can't remember the location now. It, it was publicized once or twice so over the years. There's nothing secret about it. But but there was a cemetery. Yeah. I think it was uh, somewhere in, in Gyeonggi province. I, I can't remember exactly where, where following incidents like this, when the, the North Koreans would not take back uh, the, mm. the remains of, of their uh, special forces uh, people who, who had been killed during infiltrations, they would be, be buried in the cemetery right. for, uh, for North Korean military personnel. It was maintained by, by the ROC army, as I recall. I think some of the first uh, to be uh, buried there were those who were killed in the 1968 uh, Blue House, or ah. as we call it, the attempt to kill right. President Park in the Blue House. And then in January of the next year, in 1996, when the U.S. wanted to talk to North Korea about missiles, North Korea agreed in principle, but insisted that it be given sanctions relief before getting down to specifics. And then a couple of months later in May, the U.S. imposed more sanctions on both North Korea and Iran because of missile technology transfers. Now, these decisions and, and meetings, of course, were not taking place at the joint security area. But to what extent were those sort of big picture events reflected in what you were experiencing and observing in Panmunjom? Well, again, as, as we discussed with, with the agreed framework, um, they, they didn't have any uh, direct impact on what we were discussing in Panmunjom. Uh, because as, as you pointed out, those discussions were outside um, the framework of the armistice agreement or those communications channels, uh, meetings that, that we had. So the North Koreans never, never brought up any issues related to them, uh, neither did we. Uh, we, we weren't uh, involved in those negotiations on either side. And, and in fact, uh, in, in, in spite of uh, the, the state of play that, that you just described and those larger issues, we were having fairly good discussions at that time uh, regarding a, a longstanding uh, issue of, of concern, which was the, the return of the remains of American military personnel who were still missing from the Korean War. Right. And we'll, we'll talk much more about that a bit later on. Now, there was um, a quite a, a spectacular incident in April 1996, just over 25 years ago, when several hundred armed North Korean troops entered the joint security area and elsewhere, uh, as I understand it, a clear violation of the 
Korean armistice agreement. And this actually made the New York Times because it happened three days in a row. And a, a spokesman for the uh, United Nations Command said in one of those articles, we view these activities of the past three evenings as a series of continuing serious armistice violations, but we see nothing that would warrant particular alarm, uh, which is an interesting position. Tell us how you experienced this and how you look back on the incident now. Well, well as, I, as I go back and, and think about it, I, I, I agree very much with that statement by um, the UNC spokesman. And I honestly don't remember if I was ever consulted on this statement. I could have been, but but uh, I agreed with it at, at that time, and I still do. And and here's here's the the point that I would make about it from from the standpoint of the Armistice Commission. As as I mentioned about the reconnaissance team in the Imjin River, the the incidents mm. that caused a, a loss of life or potentially could have caused a, a, a loss of life or were and and more importantly, an escalatory response uh, by either side. What were those that concerned us most? The, the, this was, a, a, frankly, I'd say an odd set of incidents, which I, I never hmm. quite understood. I, I went back and reviewed the New York Times article that, that you referenced, and, and the article used the figure 180 uh, armed North Korean soldiers. I, I think that probably came from our observation at, at the time. So, so I think the number's probably okay. accurate. And at the time, we suspected these, these were probably part of the North Korean uh, Joint Security Area or JSA security force. Uh, what, what they mm -hmm. had done, so, so they would normally have been in the area, but what they did that was provocative was they came into the Joint Security Area with a number of uh, heavy infantry weapons, uh, machine guns and mortars, as, as I recall. Uh, all of those right. items were, were certainly prohibited by the armistice agreement. So, so that's a very serious violation. And having that number of troops at one time in, inside the JSA is a violation of the armistice agreement. Uh, but what made it less threatening was, was the way they executed uh, this provocation. So during the daytime, uh, as, as you well know, and, and, and I think many of your listeners would, would know, there are hundreds of tourists that, that go to visit the Joint Security Area and Conference Row there in, in Pamunjom during normal times and yeah. during these times, both from, from the Republic of Korea, South Korea, and, and international tourists as well, and, and meetings at various levels that would be going on along Conference Row. So if they had done this during what, what I call our duty day or business day, when we had tourists in the area or had meetings going on, that would have caused a great deal of concern and alarm on our part. Mm. We would have had to have uh, uh, hastily, probably, uh, evacuate all the civilians from the area, cease the meetings, potentially consider bringing our own security personnel into the area, which would have been escalatory. Uh, but that's not the way the North Koreans did it. They waited till late in the day until everybody had gone home, uh, mm. that, that, that our, our level of concern would be less, that they brought these soldiers in, to an area they shouldn't have been in, but then they made no attempt to cross the military demarcation line or even, uh, as I understand it, to, to attempt to be crossing it. So if they'd crossed the, right. the military demarcation line regardless of the, of the time of day, that would have also been extraordinarily serious and, and they would have been met with hmm. force if, if they continued to cross the MDL. Um, and they, right, the rapid reaction they, they made no attempt out. to do that. So, so my hmm. read of this was they didn't want a crisis that was going to escalate, but but they but they did want to raise tensions and and they orchestrated hmm. it uh, in, in a way that they achieved both those objectives. Although I'm 
I'm still at a loss to understand why at that particular time they wanted to do this. Right. Uh, and then uh, later that year, there was another very significant event on the uh, Korean Peninsula. Uh, you wouldn't have been aware of it, but uh, around, well, on July 20th, 1996, I first arrived in Korea. Um, so that uh, memo probably didn't make it all the way up to Panmunjom, but uh, well, uh, you know well, about it now. You can, you can, you can, you can factor I, that uh, my, in My memory's not too good anymore. I, I, it was probably reported, <laughs> Jaco, I've just forgotten the memo. <laughs> Uh, and then I do remember that the first, actually the first real big incident that I remember was in September of that year, September 1996, the North Korean People's Army uh, sent a submarine to insert a reconnaissance team, but it ran aground on the east coast of Korea. Uh, 25 of the submariners came ashore and there was this long, for almost 50 day manhunt for them. Uh, and I remember it being quite a, a tense and nervous time, even though I was way over um, in Munsan, which is, you know, quite close to, uh, to Panmunjom. And this was all happening on the east coast in Kangwon province. I remember reading about it in the papers and, and hearing about it on television. So tell us how you experienced that and how the North Koreans who you met with in the UNCMAC meetings responded to, to that uh, submarine incident. Well, this brings up the, 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 the third armistice violation that, that, that we're talking about. And this, this is, in, in my uh, opinion, uh, a great example of a very serious, uh, worrisome North Korean uh, armistice violation of, of the, the time that I spent in the Armistice Commission, both in the 80s and, and 90s. So this was by far the most serious uh, incident I was, was involved in. But it, you can see a, a, a bit of a pattern here, right, uh, with the Amgen River incident and this one. They, they were both about trying to get three-man reconnaissance teams into South Korea, something in those days the North Koreans apparently did quite frequently, although they weren't always discovered. The way it uh, came to our attention in, in uh, the Military Armistice Commission, we, we were informed like everyone else, as soon as the, the submarine was spotted there, there on, on the ground, the ROC military uh, quickly informed us of it. And we did, just as we had in the Imjin River incident, our, our first responsibility was go out and investigate, uh, see what had happened because it certainly sounded like a pretty serious armistice uh, incident and uh, violation. Did you have to go out yourself as well? Uh, uh, this time I didn't go out myself. This time my assistant secretary, very, uh, very uh, experienced officer named uh, at that time, Lieutenant Colonel Tom Riley, uh, later the American um, defense attache in Seoul went out. Hmm. But when, um, when Tom went out with, with his team, they found the submarine, of course, but no people on it. They had, had hastily left a, a, a lot of uh, a lot of things left in the submarine and, and, and on the beach, but but all all the people were gone. They they had gone inland, and sometime I think with a few days later, then, then some number of them. Uh, it's probably in the press somewhere, but uh, I, I would say five, five or more of them were found shot execution style by their yeah. own people, not far away from the submarine. Uh, but the others continued to go out and evade capture. So, so that, that was our first step was, was to find out what had happened, do the investigation. And then the, then the next step would be to uh, talk to the North Koreans about it in Panmunjom. And fortunately, the, I think within a day or two of that initial investigation, uh, we had an already scheduled staff officer meeting. So we went ahead with, with the meeting, and my interest at that point, of course, first of all, was to, to make sure that we lodged a, a protest with them and, and to find out what they were going to say about it. Because I suspected, like with the, the case in the Imjin River, they would deny the whole thing. Well, when 
yeah. and I was not at that meeting. Uh, our staff, staff officers uh, from the Secretariat were, were, were there. And when, when they came back, uh, they said, well, the North Koreans had reacted the way we had expected them to, as they, they normally did. They, uh, in, in spite of the fact that we showed them photographs of the submarine, of course, this had all been in the press by that point. They said, no, it's, it's, hmm. uh, it's a South Korean fabrication designed to uh, make it look like we had violated the armistice agreement, but we had nothing to do with it. It's not our submarine, not our people don't know anything about it. So I, yeah. I thought that was not a surprise, uh, kind of the way I expected they would react. And I thought that was about the last that they would uh, have to say about it, uh, but I was wrong. Yeah. So a few days later, now a bit further down, down, down the road, their story changed completely. And now the submarine turns out to have been theirs in, in their version of the incident, that, that it was, uh, one of the North Korean submarines, military submarines, uh, that had been in a training exercise in North Korean waters, uh, suffered an engine failure, and drifted innocently uh, into South Korean waters until it it ran aground. And is this technically they, feasible? Well, uh, I guess you'd have to ask a naval officer. I, actually, I, I yeah. think that it would be. Although I, I suspect that it would take a long time. But one thing that I learned in and the Armistice Commission is, is that the currents there in the East Sea and in, in the area around from yeah. Sokcho down to Kangnam uh, flow north to south. It's a fairly steady north-south current there. So things would normally float down. Right. But I don't know how long it would take a submarine uh, on the surface to, to go floating down to South Korea. So uh, Because as I recall, mm. the submarine was found a fair ways down the coast near Kangnam. Can't remember how far that is from the DMZ, but it's, it's not right on the DMZ. Yeah, actually, it's a tourist site now. So I, when I went to Kangnung, uh just before the Winter Olympics of 2018, people can go and, uh, you know, I went to visit that submarine and you can walk around inside it. It's a bit like the, the USS Pueblo in Pyongyang. You know, they've set it up there and people can go and walk in there. <laughs> Interesting. Well, I had to go back again. What, what happened to the submarine ultimately was it was um, taken down to the, the Rock Navy base in Chine. And I was able to uh, to go on on it uh, short. I forget how long that would have been. Maybe a month or so later. But it's a very small submarine, isn't it? For twenty five mm. people to have been on. Yes. And and the bodies of the uh, of the submariners were they then received back after North Korea claimed it as one of their uh, vessels? Well, well, yes. Ultimately, that they were. But but this story, as as you recall from from your days there in Korea, went on for a long time. Um, mm. The, the way that, that it should have been solved, as far as I and, and the United Nations Command and the, the, those in the Republic of Korea were, were concerned, is that uh, the, the North Koreans are, are, are now, whether, whether it had been an accident, which it certainly wasn't an accident, but even if it had been, they should have uh, not, not uh, avoided capture, should have turned themselves in, and then we could have sorted yeah. it out through the armistice. Uh, agreement, and that's what I told my North Korean counterparts. And instead, should be done. And instead, they argued that that we should stop the hunt for them because people were being killed by this this point. Uh, North Koreans were yeah. being killed, and they were killing not only ROC military personnel who were looking for them; they killed ROC civilians. So we, we wanted to put an end to this incident. They they, they wouldn't agree with that. Mm. They simply said we should mm. stop tracking them, stop hunting them, uh, let them go. 
without any clear explanation of, well, how is it that they're going to get back to North Korea exactly? Yeah. Uh, but but in, in the end, you know, they, they were all killed except uh, one, one or two possibly. Mm. Their bodies were cremated by, uh, by the authorities in, in South Korea. And then finally, after a statement of regret from the DPRK to, uh, to both no. uh, to, to the Republic of Korea, uh, essentially, and others involved, um, it was my responsibility. Then on the, the 30th of December, the, the day before New Year's, uh, mm. New Year's Eve, to uh, go to Pamunjans, meet my counterpart again, and, and return uh, uh, the remains of, as I recall, of 24 uh, North Koreans who had been on the submarine. And then you uh, you finished up your term as uh, UNCMAC secretary in uh, 1997, and so now we fast forward to May 2000 to May 2005, a, a good five year stretch when you were working as a civil servant in the office of the Secretary of Defense, assigned to the Defense PW Missing Personnel Office (DPMO) in Arlington, Virginia, all about finding remains of deceased soldiers from the Korean War. Why is that so important to the United States to retrieve those remains from the battlefield where they've lain peacefully for 50 plus years? Well, it's important because it's it's truly important to the families of those men who were lost. Uh, at, at the time, it, it was important to their parents and, and, and their, their wives, their children. Uh, and it continues to this day to, to be very important to, to their surviving uh, wives, their, their children, and now their grandchildren. Similar efforts had been made for those missing uh, from the war in Vietnam, and the families of those lost in, in Korea uh, deserve and, and expected the, the, the same effort. Uh, and, and frankly, the American people, through their elected representatives, uh, feel that way. And, and so it was our, mm. our mission in the U.S. government to to try to do everything we could to find the remains of those missing men and bring them home. And in fact, you first became involved in this mission to recover U.S. remains way back in that period when you were an UNCMAC language officer, didn't you? Uh, it, it, yes, that's right. Uh, that was my first introduction to the issue. And as, as I mentioned, uh, the, the, the American public attitude on, on the subject of, of war remains changed uh, dramatically after the war in Vietnam and, and when men who, whose families believed that, that they might still be alive didn't come home, um, we made a great effort uh, in Southeast Asia to find the remains and bring them home. So in the 1980s, at, at that time, 86 to 88, the Korean War families uh, who really had not received much support from the government mm. since 1956, when, when the remains issue seemed to have been solved at the end of the Korean War, even though there were over 8,000 men still missing. They wanted the government, and they deserved to have the government do a little more. So in, in UNCMAC, our, our superiors there, our, our secretary at, at the time, uh, Colonel Don Boos, said, we, we, we need to do something. So what we thought of doing was looking for the remains of KPA soldiers who had died uh, in the early days of the Korean War and whose remains were probably located on the battlefields down around the, the Pusan perimeter. Uh, so, mm. so we went and looked for them and, and we actually found uh, remains of North Korean soldiers. Our thought was we would offer those back that, that would, would encourage the North Koreans perhaps to, to look a little bit harder for our own men in the North. 
But uh, when we offered those remains back to the KPA and Pamunjan Korean War remains, uh, and we had the artifacts to clearly show they, they, they were the remains of, uh, of North Korean soldiers, they, they said, yes, uh, we, we can say they are our men, but they're buried in the soil of the fatherland, and you should leave them alone. Mm, right. What, what, what happened after that, though, is, is what really got the, the, um, the, the business uh, started with, with recovering remains mm. in North Korea. Uh, and that was after I left. By about 1990, the, the North Koreans decided to do their own recoveries, as we had asked, of, of remains of Americans uh, still in North Korea. And they began returning those through Panmunjom. Their, their only demand at the time was that an American member of Congress be there when they returned the remains. So the first set That's came... an interesting demand to make, isn't it? Rather than saying, you know, that we have to have a general or a naval rear admiral, to actually demand a member of Congress, it seems a very specific... Uh, demand. Uh, it, it is, and and my my analysis, uh, just just my opinion, I, I should say, of of that is that what what they wanted to do was to have more uh, direct contact with the U.S. government at a higher level, and mm. in, in a way that would uh, would win for North Korea um, a public relations victory. I, I I can't put it in other terms, with, with the American people, yeah. uh, where, where they would be seen and recognized in, in a very public way as assisting us with this issue that we had already said was very important to us. Uh, simply going through mm. the, the UNMAC channels, I, I, I believe they felt wouldn't give them the, the level of recognition and publicity or direct contact with the U.S. government official that they wanted. And then when you were uh, the UNMAC secretary in 96, 97, you actually negotiated joint operations that began even during these tensions that we talked about the uh the reconnaissance team and the uh, the mortar drills and the jsa and the and the submarine incursion uh even around that time that these joint operations began how did that come about and how was it possible to move forward on that issue even while dealing with these incursions we just mentioned i think two things that that uh really helped from from the beginning when i first got to um to Panmunjom again in, in March of 1995 and, and met my uh, North Korean counterpart, the senior colonel, Pakam Su. Uh, one of the first things he said to me was that they were willing in, in principle, the KPA was willing in principle to support a request that had ma been made uh, before I, I had gotten back by my predecessors, which was that rather than just have unilateral recoveries by the North Koreans of remains, that, that we do joint recoveries, that we actually send our own specialists, uh, U.S. Army recovery personnel and civilian anthropologists to North Korea, to the battle sites, work together with the KPA uh, to recover the remains. And, and we wanted to do that because we thought it would give us uh, additional information that would make positive identifications uh, more reliable and, and, and easier. So Colonel Pak said, "Look, we're we're willing in principle to to do that, but we have a we have a, a hold up here." He argued, uh, "This was the North Korean position that we owe them money for the unilateral recoveries, mm. even even though they had never asked to be paid before they started them, and until you pay us what what we feel uh, we're owed for those unilateral recoveries." Uh, we want to start the joint recovery. So, so we, we hassled uh, over that for, for uh, nine months or so. And we, we were able to, to talk about it uh, regardless of what else was going on and uh, eventually uh, come to, to an agreement that we would solve or attempt to solve both issues at, at the same time by uh, having the North, uh, North Korean 
delegation of both uh, KPA officials, their own anthropological experts, and, and uh, members of their Ministry of Foreign Affairs go to the uh, U.S. Army Central Identification Laboratory in uh, Honolulu at Hickam Air Force Base to meet with the U.S. Department of Defense officials and, and experts on remains recoveries to try to hash out an agreement. Uh, so mm. th th this was in January 96, we had those first meetings, as, as you said, when other things were going on, but we, we were able to, to do more than one thing in, in uh, the Armistice Com uh, uh, Commission, and, and the North Koreans wanted this to happen. Uh, we didn't get an agreement at that first meeting, but then we met again in May of 96 in New York City, got an agreement, agreed to give them $2 million in compensation for what they claimed had been their expenses uh, during the the unilateral recovery starting in 1990, and the final final step then was for me to uh, to make that payment in in cash to the North Koreans in Panmunjom. So I I felt so two million dollars uh, in cash is that a lump sum for everything, or was it like a, a, a sort of a pro rata number per per you know deceased soldier returned or well, well, that's that's very good. Calculated. Very good question. So, so one thing that, and 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 here it's it's really a U.S. government position, uh, which we're supporting in in Akmak. Um, what was never to pay a certain amount for one remain. We, we didn't ah. want to make remains into commodities, where where mm. people would would start raiding cemeteries in order to sell a set of remains to us. So, so, so it it was for the the totality of the work they claimed they had done. We never would hmm. pay them, well, if we get five sets of remains, we'll pay you X amount of money. If we get six sets, we'll pay another. We, we simply said, uh, for, for your past efforts, we'll pay you this much. And then uh, for the joint recoveries, we, we agreed to pay expenses involved, whether remains were found or not found. There, were, there was no relationship between the number of remains found and the amount of money mm -hmm. that would be paid. And and then how and when was that money? Because you said it was paid in cash. How was it paid from the U.S. to the DPRK for those searches? It was it was agreed upon in in, in the U.S. government that um, that the Military Armistice Commission would would make those payments. And and I guess I set the precedent for for that in, in a way when I made that first two million dollar payment. And as as people who follow the, these issues know and and some of the six-party talks uh, problems that, that came up with, with uh, Banco Delta Asia, that the, the, the international finance uh, system doesn't support payments to North Korea very readily. So, so mm. the simplest way to do it was to give them the money in cash, which uh, is authorized by, by the U.S. government. Uh, we'd go to the finance office, the U.S. Army Finance Office in Yongsan, uh, they had the, the money there in $100 bills, $2 million. Uh, I take the finance officer with me, uh, who was, was a dispersing agent, and uh, we took the cash to, to, to Pamunjan and made, made, uh, made the payment that way. Uh, there was no possibility of, of using a credit card or paying them uh, by cash. Yes. Now, I, I don't know um, how many, or rather, what volume of 100 hundred dollar bills you need to to make two hundred sorry two million dollars uh but you know having watched a lot of heist movies in my lifetime i think it's more than a suitcase full so i have this image 
of you driving from Yongsan Garrison up to Panmunjom in this armored truck with $2 million <laughs> in it. Was it something like that? And you know, well, we, could, we have, could you have been waylaid by some rogue soldiers who were desperate for $2 million cash if well, it all had it, gone wrong? You know, we have to consider things like that. And, and we, we had a few jokes yeah. along the lines before I made the first payment, including some of my colleagues saying, well, that's the last time we'll ever see Orms. He's take that $2 million yeah. and disappear in Macau or something. But, but uh, well, it actually fits fairly neatly into a, a gym bag size. Uh, oh. It comes in, in blocks of $100,000, so 20 blocks of those. And, and the lieutenant in his gym bag uh, uh, would, would left with a military police armed guard. Uh, we went yeah. to the helipad on Yongsan. Uh, got into a U.S. Army helicopter with with the with the lieutenant and, and the bag of cash and and yeah, it did feel goodness like, me like handling a, a drug heist. Land, landed at Camp Boniface where where yeah. armed soldiers met us. Um, we went wow. into the JSA, uh, armed soldiers all around, and uh, uh, so it, it was actually once we got there, it was a pretty safe environment to have that much much money. But uh, right. we took the normal precautions going up. And and what, what was it? Was there a moment in T two where you slid the gym bag across the table, and you know the North Korean colonels look at each other and, and each pull out a, a wad of bills and and check them to make sure there's no fakes among them? I mean, <laughs> just get, draw a picture for me, please, Ash. Yeah. Well, again, the the, the bills were maybe more than than you want to know. I, I discovered it even more during, during my time as a civilian going to North Korea, but. North Koreans uh, like $100 bills. Uh, they're very concerned about being given counterfeits back since they know a bit about counterfeit currency, apparently mm. behind a, a lot of it. So, so they're, they're suspect of, of bills that have marks on them. You know, if a bank teller right. has made a mark on, on a stack of bills. So we, we got new, new $100 bills that, that had never been in circulation before. They were still in, in the shrink Gosh. wrap from the U.S. Bureau of uh, Printing and Engraving. Through the U.S. Army finance system, and gave them gave them those those blocks. But we we also had a uh, the the finance officer uh, pay pay officer from from the old military terminology uh, brought a counting yeah. machine. You know, one of those automatic right. uh, counting machines. And and I told Colonel Bach, uh, well, here's the money. I need a receipt from you. I, I guess he yeah. I guess he could have grabbed it and run out the north door with it, uh, but I wouldn't have had the re, had the receipt, and, and that would have pretty much put an end to recovery operations. So so that wasn't his objective. I said so. You you know take your time. We'll be here all day. Uh, count them. Yeah. Uh, you know count them. But it's a lot of bills. Well, he just gave him a, a cursory look. Uh, said oh, okay. Uh, signed the receipt, and and we had had the meeting. Talked a little bit. Had lunch, and 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 he left. Ironically, after so they that, didn't count them in the end. Uh, he didn't. He didn't use the counting machine. Although, again, huh. um, the, these these were in blocks and shrink wrap. Each block was a hundred thousand dollars. They're banded together in hundred dollar bills. Yeah. So, so I think uh, each 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 packet within that block was like ten thousand dollars. So, so he could look and see all the bills there. You could right. do, do the the quick arithmetic that that wouldn't guarantee that. That someone hadn't slipped a few hundreds out, or that they weren't counterfeit, that sort of thing. So it gave him the opportunity to to examine them as long as yeah. as, as he wanted to. We were prepared to sit there all day long, and he could use the counting machine or whatever else he wanted to do. Uh, but but he didn't. He didn't do that. Later, I, ironically, uh, hmm. they took the bills back, and and as I recall, 
they came back through our duty officer and said, look, look, we, we checked the bills um, after we got them back. And, and they had some small amount, I think a few, a few thousand of them and uh, turned out to be counterfeit and we'd like replacements. And, and I thought that mm. was a bit outrageous. And we said, well, sorry, <laughs> I'm, I'm confident none of them were counterfeit and we're not replacing those. And that, and never heard about it again. Goodness. Uh, now that that wasn't the only payment, right? There were some years of uh, almost ten years in which these uh, payments were made. Is that correct? That, that's correct. So, so again, that payment I was describing was the payment for those unilateral recoveries that had gone on from 1990 till I forget when the last one was. I, I'm guessing around 1994 or so. Mm -hmm. um, but then as the joint recoveries that, that began in the summer of 1996 and continued on until, until May of 2005 with some recoveries each year uh, in, in that period, as those went forward, uh, there would be an arrangement made through negotiation with, with the KPA and the North Korean Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, for compensation for the joint recoveries, which would be be paid in advance uh, using that same process that, that I just described. And during that, uh, that period of approximately 10 years, a uh, total, according to a statement made a few years ago by uh, an officer in, in the uh, Defense Prisoner War Missing Personnel Office, uh, $19.5 million were paid to the North Koreans in cash during that period through Prime John. Uh, 19.5 million. It, it does seem like quite a bit of money. Um, is, does that make the project a bit of a cash cow for North Korea? Do you believe it was worth it? Well, well, I, I, I very strongly believe that, that it was worth it. We, we could argue whether it's a, a cash cow. I, I would be delighted if somebody gave me $19.5 million in Italy. Uh, even if it was for 10 years work, not just a single year's work. But, but I, I would argue, even in, in North Korea, a country of 20-some million people, I, I, I think, uh, it's not going to make a significant difference in their military programs or, or in, in the, the, the standard of people in North Korea. So I wouldn't call it a cash cow, exactly. Hmm. The, the, the reason that I think that it was certainly worth it was that the expenses were in line with what was being paid in Southeast Asia for the same level of work. So, so we didn't feel we were giving uh, the North Koreans uh, an unreasonably large amount of money. And, and we would argue in the negotiations about how much they would get. Uh, and, and that's what it turned out to be. But when we think about why we were doing this, again, it goes back to the families of those men missing. And to those of us who were involved in, in this work, and, and, I, and again, to their elected representatives, this was a humanitarian effort. And the beneficiaries of this effort were the families of those men who, uh, who never came home. Mm. And I, I and many others felt like they were, they were owed this. And, and frankly, not, 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 to, not to criticize food aid, but if, if we can give food aid to, to the people who are definitely starving in North Korea as a humanitarian gesture, I think we can make a similar humanitarian gesture to the families of those men who died fighting for us in Korea. Now, I, I think ironically under current um, United Nations sanctions that forbid uh, strictly the uh, large transfers of cash money to uh, North Korea, this kind of payment for uh, a joint operation is would be specifically prohibited. Uh, unless there's a, is there a carve out for that? I don't know. I haven't checked. Well, I, I don't know the answer e either. Uh, um, 
I can't claim to have current knowledge uh, on that. Um, it could be. I, I can only say that, that very definitely at the time we were doing this, uh, we mm. checked with all agencies of, of U.S. government and uh, United Nations command representatives, uh, Americans at, at, at the United Nations itself, and, and we were in, in compliance with American laws and, and and the language of any existing sanctions. Whether that's true today or not is, is, a, is a good question. Yep. I'm, I'm afraid I don't know the answer. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, I, I think specifically because uh, at the Singapore summit between President Trump and uh, Chairman Kim, you know, that, that one, one of the four points that they did make an agreement on was the uh, working together to find remains again. So I, I kind of wonder how that was, was going to proceed. But yeah, at the moment, there's not much going on anyway because of COVID. Yeah. Uh, well, one thing I'd, I'd just add to that, Jocko, and, and again, I'm oh, sure, not sure. an expert on it. I, I was an interested reader of, of what was going on, uh, reported in the press and the Singapore agreement. And, and as far as I could tell, there was no agreement uh, by the United States to pay the North Koreans uh, to, to pay the DPRK anything uh, mm. to for the unilateral remains they gave back or to uh, to start joint recovery operations. However, I'd go back to, to 1990 when they first started unilateral recoveries, uh, you know, the, giving those remains back to us with, with the congressman present. They didn't ask for anything then either. They waited till later mm. to ask. So my bet would be if we did start that, it wouldn't be too long before the DPRK started talking about, by the way, we'd like some compensation if you want this program to continue. Yeah, yeah, it, it does sound, um, you know, quite reasonable, I suppose. Uh, now, you ended up making six trips to North Korea to observe um, some of these joint recovery operations. Tell us about that experience. That must have been interesting for you for the first time to actually go into uh, North Korean territory. Well, well, well uh, personally, it was really fascinating, a, a, a little bit, bit odd for me to be up there having been in, in Panmunjom because I, I was working with, uh, fortunately, I, I was working with the, with the same KPA officers that I had worked with in Panmunjom, which, which made it easy for me. I, I didn't have to get to, to know a, a group of people I'd never, never had to negotiate hmm. or, or talk to before. So, so that was good. But, but fascinating to, to go to North Korea. I'd tried to read as much as I could about North Korea and talk to people who'd been there and look at photographs they'd taken. But and of course, it's, it's different to actually be there yourself. Uh, and and it was particularly meaningful to to me to um, to be able to go to those battlefields uh, and see them uh, as a as someone who like many people is interested in military history to actually see see that where where those yeah. uh, tremendous battles uh, in, in when the Chinese intervened in late 1954 and we spent most of our time uh, around Unsan up in North Pyongan province and around the area the Americans call the Chosun Reservoir should be the Changjin Ho, of course, uh, and the city right. of Changjin in, in South Hongkong province. And finally, I'd, I'd say it, it made clear to me something that I'd been told and understood, but I could visually see and, and, and feel the tremendous difference between what it's like to live in Pyongyang and what it's like to live in uh, Hongkong province. Yes. Uh, uh, wow. And how long would, were you there each time? Well, let me give a nod to, to the, the, the folks who were there for long times. So the recovery teams would, would go in for a month at a time. And, and that can, that can the, the interest level of being in North Korea starts to, to wear off and can be kind of tedious 
uh, for them. But I, mm. I would only go there for a, a week or so at a time. And I, I was uh, on the, the staff of the Office of Secretary of Defense, kind of going to, to see how things were going, talk, talk to the North Koreans if there had been some issues. So during that week, we'd spend, uh, we'd go in and out, we'd fly from Beijing to Pyongyang to Sunan, uh, just north of Pyongyang where the, where the airport is. Uh, we'd, we'd spend a, a couple days in Pyongyang and, and then drive uh, up, up to Unsan and, and then, then back over to the East Coast and, and up to uh, Changjin. And what was, I mean, you, you said that uh, you're dealing with um, your same Korean People's Army counterparts that you had when you were in in North Korea, I'm guessing that meant Senior Colonel Park Rim Soo was there with you. Uh, he he was he was there uh, a lot of times at the negotiations when we, we work out the annual agreement. He, he was frequently there when I would go to North Korea. I, I think I saw him once or twice, and and then some of his staff officers who men who had been staff officers when uh, I was the UNMAX secretary now been been promoted, and and they would uh, they would be the senior KPA officer. But but it was. Uh, and their language officers, uh, you know, doing some of their translations uh, for us would be the same ones I had met. So it, it was you know, familiar faces made it made it more productive, easier to to uh, have frank discussions. I could say. Yeah, well, I was going to ask you about that. How was your your personal rapport with your North Korean uh, colleagues? It was it was fairly good, and and I think that that was was a matter of uh, of getting to to know them. Sometimes when we weren't dealing with anything substantive, it could, could almost be be friendly, and, and and it wasn't an issue of uh, if if they like you, they'll give you a better deal than if they don't like you. Uh, mm. Certainly, they're they're going to going to get the best deal they can, regardless of what they think of of their American colleagues. But it simply made it easier to understand and trust one one another, so so that when when they made a very specific promise to do something, I had confidence that it would fill it, uh, you know, fulfill that promise. And when I would make a similar uh, promise, they, they could trust me. And there were, were a few rules like, like that, that, that I had learned some of them the hard way to, to follow that made things go more smoothly. One of them was to, to keep, keep your word if you tell them that you're going to do something, make sure you're going to do it. Mm. Uh, another one was, was don't surprise them. Don't, don't deliberately try to surprise them just to enjoy the look of surprise on, on their face by tricking them, uh, but doing something yeah. unexpected. It's, it's generally counterproductive. Uh, it causes them to then have to back up, wonder how they got surprised, slows everything down. Um, mm. And causes them to trust you less. And, uh, another one was uh, that that helped uh, that I mentioned earlier was to to understand Korean cultural norms and and try to follow those. Uh, I mentioned with the food, so we would bring food. I, I'd act as the host, uh, pour their drink into their glass for them. They'd do the same for me. Just, just those things that are uh, not highly significant in Korean culture, but but a sign of of respect and and. Uh, relationship which wasn't adversarial at all the time. And by this time, was your Korean language skill advanced enough that you were able to understand not just what they were saying to you, but also what they were saying about you to each other? I, I wish I could say that it was. Um, some of my predecessors and successors of the language officer had much better Korean language skills than I did, but but I'd, I'd have to say that, no, I wouldn't have necessarily um, picked up uh, a comment about me if, if they had made it in sort of a, uh, an offhand, oblique manner. But I don't really think that, that they did. Among other reasons, uh, I had my own translators normally with me who would have, would have picked it up and told me about it later, probably. And also, 
they really weren't sure how much Korean I could understand. So I, I think they were mm. were careful enough and polite enough, probably in those meetings, not not to to say something about me right to my face in Korean. Now, what they said after the meetings, I I have no idea. Right. Now, in 1953, when the Korean War armistice was signed and there were the uh, uh, the exchanges of prisoners of war from both sides, there were still rumors and stories that U.S. POWs uh, were being held alive in North Korea even after the exchange. Uh, have you ever seen any convincing evidence that this was the case? No, no I, I never really saw uh, convincing evidence that that, that that was the case. There was a study d- done um, by the RAND Corporation mm-hmm. in 1994, and, and the conclusion of, of the study was that uh, up to 50 Americans might have been taken to the Soviet Union uh, and held against their will and, and never released. That study, which is unclassified and, and, uh, and available online, was the closest that I ever ever came to, to finding something that, that laid out an argument that, that Americans were, were left behind against their will. Mm. But even, even that, I, I would have to say, was, was not the kind of conclusive evidence that that I, I would want to see to, to believe that it had definitely happened. Now, when you're looking at human remains that have been found in the, the soil of North Korea, how possible is it to identify those remains as being from an American soldier and not, say, from a Colombian soldier or a French soldier or a South African or a, even a South Korean soldier? Well, the, there could be times where, where uh, it wouldn't have initially been possible. Although I, I, in my experience, I, I can't remember um, us ever later finding that it was a soldier from another sending state. But that basically, the the people who did the identification, civilian uh, anthropologists, forensic anthropologists, very highly trained, and they used all the, the tools of of their trade. Uh, DNA was was available by by the time we started the, these operations, and it's it's gotten much better since then. One of the things that helps a lot is, is that we, we have a, a DNA database made up of family members of, of the missing men so, so that, that we can match the, any DNA found with remains uh, against known family members of, of missing men and see if, see if there's a relationship there. They also do all the forensic techniques of going back, looking at medical records, examining uh, the bones and uh, against X-rays, chest X-rays, that that sort of thing. Looking, looking for matches. Dental records are, are available for most most of the, the missing men. Artifacts are sometimes found that, that that give an indication of the country the missing men would be from. And our researchers have gone back. So so for for each one of those missing men, uh, originally over eight thousand. Uh, we, we have done the research to find exactly where they were lost. So if a set of remains is mm. found in a particular area. Uh, it's possible for the researchers to go back and say, well, right, in, in this area, the, these are the names of the men who are missing there. And, and by the way, there were no Australian uh, soldiers fighting uh, in this area so, or, or other mm. sending state soldiers. So for sending states, I, I can't remember if the United States in recent years has found some of those remains mixed in with Americans and returned them or not. They certainly would if they'd found them. They, we have determined, as I understand it, that remains of South Korean soldiers who were serving as Korean augmentees to the U.S. Army or, or Katusas, their remains were found, uh, uh, having been returned, uh, originally thought to be those of American soldiers. And those have been identified as, as being uh, 
South Koreans through the process I just des described and, and returned to the Republic mm. of Korea. Have other sending states also shown um, uh, an interest in or placed a priority on having their missing soldiers' remains returned? I, I can't give you an up-to-date answer on that. I, I, I don't know what, what the um, their present views are. In the 1980s and 90s, they, they didn't have the public interest in this that had evolved in the United States because of the war in Vietnam that, that I described earlier. Uh, uh, that there there yep. was an interest. At, at, at one time, the North Koreans came to us and, and said that uh, they had found remains which were those of a British soldier. So we agreed to accept those through the Armistice Commission. They stipulated that a, that a British officer needed to be there to receive them. So uh, Brigadier Colin Parr, who, who was the the British liaison officer, the United Nations Command, and also the defense had a Shea in Seoul, was there to receive the remains back. Uh, unfortunately, when we got those remains back and, and went through that process I, I just described of identification, mm. they were found to be those of an American, not a British soldier. Uh, the the mm. plan at that time, as I recall, was to, had they been identified as British, was, was to bury them in Pusan, in the United Nations Command Cemetery down in Pusan. Uh, right. not to return them to the UK. So so some cultural differences there where, where the American families yeah. want them brought home uh, in those days in the 1990s. The British tradition was still uh, still to uh, bury the men uh, near where they had fallen, but in, in a proper, fell, yeah. uh, proper British or, or United Nations command cemetery. Uh, in the early 2000s, when you were involved in this process, I remember there was an incident where um, the remains of a Japanese woman who had been abducted to North Korea uh, were returned to her family and her family had the remains, uh, they were cremated remains uh, tested uh, and found that they did not contain human DNA. And so there was a complaint made you know, to the North Korean authorities and that really uh, set back relations uh, between the Japanese and the, and the North Korean governments. Did North Korea, do you think, from your experience, did North Korea ever try and intentionally mislead the US by giving back remains that it knew were not those of US soldiers? Well, there, there are uh, several different issues there in your question. Um, okay. you, you know, you, you might want to go back again. I, I can't remember. I was interested in, in the case of, of the, the Japanese remains uh, for obvious reasons when, when it took place. I'm not sure that the DNA showed that they weren't human remains. My, my recollection was that it showed that they weren't the remains of the person who the North Koreans said they had returned the remains of, but but I'm not sure. You you might be be right about that. In in any case, it's relatively simple to tell the difference between human and animal remains, uh, and the mm. Koreans never, to my knowledge, intentionally, in in spite of some reporting to the contrary, never intentionally uh, gave back animal remains rather than uh, than human remains. That's that's easily detected by forensic experts, anthropologists. Apologists mm -hmm. would be able to spot that fairly quickly. But in terms of giving back, uh, say, say remains that could have been, who knows what, some, someone who, who had died in North Korea, North, North Korean, and, and try, tried to, to convince us that those were American remains. No, no I, I don't think they ever, ever attempted that. We, we never found evidence of it. Their, their motivation was, was to find American remains and give them back to us. 
for, for some of those reasons I talked about earlier, try, trying to have uh, perhaps a better political, in those days, a better political relationship with the United States. And there was no shortage of American remains for them to look for. So I, I don't think they ever had the temptation of, uh, gee, we can't find any American remains. Maybe we could get them to believe that these remains mm. of some someone else are American remains and give those to them. Uh, that was not an issue as far as I could tell. Right. And it, it appears I misspoke. I, I went and did a quick check while you were speaking there. Um, it was uh, as best I could tell uh, the remains that were given, I think, in, in uh, well, certainly the early 2000s of uh, Yokota Megumi uh, were found to be uh, not hers, but yes, yeah, some other humans. Um, yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. Not sure. I, I think that's what right. that what the uh, the real source of those remains were. So you were ultimately able to recover the remains of how many missing men? Oh, I, I apologize. I should have that uh, statistic readily uh, available. Um, the, the best way to find that is to, to go to the, the defense prisoner, uh, um, I'm sorry, yeah, DPAA, Defense Prisoner of War Missing Personnel Accounting Agency website, and they, they, they have the up-to-date information. Uh, the, the reason huh. I can't give, give you an answer is when the remains would come back, yeah. the, the, there would be a sort of an initial estimate of, of how many different people were represented in, 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 a, in, in, a, in a group of remains. But through that very detailed scientific uh, and research process, it would later usually be determined because of commingling of remains, particularly in a battlefield situation, mm. that, that the remains of more people than that were actually there. So the, the joint recoveries, as I recall, I, I think initially uh, 229 sets of remains came back mm. by by the accounting at, uh, of the time. But I believe that more people than that have been identified uh, in those remains. Okay. You understand what I mean by commingling, right? Uh, so so yes. after after a battle, what, what would typically happen, these people weren't buried in individual graves. Uh, usually uh, North Korean soldiers or local farmers would, would just pile remains of dead soldiers and, and to, and to a, a depression in the ground or, or, or a group pit burial, pile them on top of one another. So, so all, after all these years, we're dealing with, with, yep. with bones, uh, fragments, and they're mixed together. So the anthropologists, yeah. while they're in North Korea, would look at what they had. North Koreans would, would be there and they kind of say, well, the best we can determine there are remains of 12 people here. But when they'd go to the lab, start doing DNA analysis, they'd find out, well, no, actually, they're parts of 15 different people here. Right. But are there still believed to be many U.S. remains buried in North Korea? Yes. So I, I did check on, on the website. I, I believe the, the total number of, of American soldiers still missing from the Korean War is around 7,500. Um, and, and that includes people who are buried in, in the American military cemeteries as unknown soldiers. But probably mm. the majority of those 7,500 still missing men are, are in North Korea. Wow. So really, uh, the, of those that were buried in North Korea, really, we've only found uh, a, well, less than 5% of them with the, uh, the, the joint recovery processes. Uh, yeah, it's it's a, I I wouldn't hazard what the actual percentage is now because that would recall uh, have to have the up to date figure on how many have been identified. Right. I I don't have that, but it's a small fraction. You're correct. Yeah. Can you envisage a future resumption of joint U.S. North Korea searches for remains for which the North Korean government will presumably receive some payment at some stage in the future? 
Well, I, I would say it's unlikely right now. And, 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 I, and I wouldn't predict that the U.S. government would be willing to pay either. I, I, don't, I don't want to try to lock anybody in, in, into that. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised yeah. the North Koreans asked for payment. But after Singapore uh, and the Singapore agreement and, and the attention given in, in the agreement to this issue of, of uh, the Korean War remains of American soldiers, I was fairly optimistic uh, at that time that, that the joint recoveries uh, would begin. But, uh, but I was wrong, obviously. And in retrospect, I, I think what I didn't see uh, clearly was how close that this issue had become, uh, perhaps as a result of the wording of the Singapore Agreement or, or, or just new, mm. new uh, policies in, in, in the DPRK, how, how close this issue had become now to the missile issue, the, the issue of uh, the North Korean nuclear production, the sanctions and so forth. And you asked questions and I talked about how it was in the 1990s where this issue had been separate from, from those other aspects of what's going on. That doesn't seem to be the case anymore. And I think, think as, as a result, it's unlikely, in just my personal opinion, that the DPRK is going to agree to uh, joint recovery operations uh, anytime soon. I think the best hope yeah. is that perhaps we could persuade them to continue the unilateral recoveries. And remember, they, they provided some unilaterally recovered remains as part of the Singapore agreement to get them to do some more of that. But, uh, mm. but I really don't know what it would take to even get them to do that at this point. Now, you've, you've been dealing with the, uh, with the North Koreans since the mid-1980s. This is a, a non-military related question, so you can answer this any way you like. Do you believe from your many years of experience and observation that North Korea wants to have a good relationship with the United States? Purely my opinion, I, I think North Korea wants to have its cake and eat it too. It, it wants to have a, have a good relationship with the United States. It wants to establish diplomatic relations with the United States, which, which I hadn't mentioned before, but that was very much uh, going on at the same time in the 1990s, mm. as, as you recall, that the remains joint recovery started. There were talks about establishing a U.S. liaison office in North Korea. So, so they want all that. And they also want to be uh, a nuclear power. Uh, they don't want to give that right. up. That's my, my opinion. Uh, they, they, they think they can have all of that. They can work, work their way to a, a world where they'll have all those things. With, with the, the people who you were dealing with, uh, you know, who are obviously not doing the, the, the top level diplomatic nation to nation negotiations about liaison officers and things, but the, the people who you were meeting with, did, did that trickle down to them? Like, would they say things like, oh, you know, uh, it's going to be great to have a U.S. embassy here one day, Ash, or, uh, you know, can't wait till our nations can be friends with each other. Would, would, would you see that kind of attitude come out through, through them sort of looking at aspiring to a better future relationship? Well, that, that's, that's a good question. I, I, um, I think it, it brings up a couple points they would always talk about wanting a better relationship with the United States and, and of course, use that as an introduction of, but the problem is uh, mm. you Americans or the UNC keep doing these terrible things that, that are, are keeping us from having that good relationship that we want, but we wonder if you really want it because you just did X, Y, and Z. So, so that was one aspect right. of it. The, the, the other aspect would be they were very disciplined. You know, I really hadn't thought about this too much, but they were very careful not to bring up an issue that was in play between hmm. uh, the United States and the DPRK or between the DPRK and the ROK that was really outside their portfolio of things to talk about. They would not mention them at all in, in our meetings. 
so my my supposition is that that they they didn't didn't want to get crosswise with their other team that was was yeah. talking with other groups of Americans on these issues. It, it wasn't in their portfolio, so they they wouldn't mention them at all. They wouldn't talk about the nuclear issue. They wouldn't wouldn't talk about establishment of diplomatic relations. Uh, um, diplomatic relations. They, they pretty much stuck to to the agenda items like um, recovering uh, the Korean War remains that were were within their purview. Okay, well, that's where we're going to have to leave it for today. I want to thank you once again for coming on the show, Ashton Orms, and telling us about your experiences with North Koreans over the decades. Well, thank you for having me, Jocko. I've enjoyed it very much. Ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end of our bumper edition of the NK News podcast. If you already have an NK News account and you're a think tank, business, or academic institution, take a look at NK Pro. Our NK Pro platform offers unparalleled services specifically catered to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. Inquire about access at membership at nknews.org today. Also, if you have feedback, questions, or guest recommendations, remember to send them to podcast at nknews.org. Our thanks, as always, to Arias Dare and Brian Betts for facilitating this podcast and to Gabby Magnuson, our post-recording producer genius. Thanks and listen again next time. <laughs>